and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunti. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. I'm so thrilled to be talking to Kurt Gray. Kurt is the Associate Professor in Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he directs the Deepest Beliefs Lab and the Center for the Science of Moral Understanding. Kurt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Kurt, can I ask you, as a starter, to give us a little history of morality as it's been understood over time? So I guess I I won't start so back in the midst of time, but um, I'll just start with the modern, modern history, which is to say morality used to be thought of as about reasoning about rights and duties. I would say it's a more philosophically grounded enterprise. So philosophers getting together to think about what's the best way to decide how to distribute resources or power or what's the best way to live a life perhaps. And so they, uh, being philosophers, you know, old, old white men got together to think about what's the best way to answer these questions. And when psychologists came along and started to study how everyday people thought about morality, they applied their kind of uh, philosophical template onto, onto people, onto everyday people. So they thought that just like philosophers, people too thought deeply and reasoned about their, uh, their moral judgments and used things like you know, rights-based and duties-based um, reasoning. And so that happened for many decades, especially as moral psychology still had one foot firmly planted in moral philosophy. And it was kind of embodied by the work of Kohlberg, who's a developmental psychologist. And he thought that each each person progressed through a, a discrete set of stages of moral reasoning. And these stages, um, he called them something like the pre-conventional, the conventional, and the post-conventional, which are not, you know, they're not terms that sing. Uh, they're not the most descriptive <laughs> terms. But the idea is that when you're, when you're little, when you're a, a child, you reason in terms of just the, whether your parents say it's good or bad, right? And that defines the morality of something. And then when you're uh, older, you think in terms of conventional terms, right? So pre-conventional is just like dad or mom says it's good or bad. And then conventional terms are, you know, society says it's good or bad, or, uh, it, you know, it's my my duty to do something or I have a right to do something, kind of everyday thinking that, that everyday people might have. And then post-conventional is something like if you were Immanuel Kant uh, and you came up with a categorical imperative, right? Like I, I should never lie in any situation. And so it, I, I could never lie, even if it's a white lie, et cetera. So he thought that we basically progressed from children to uh, adults to Kant uh, in, in our lives <laughs> and in society. And so, and the next age was, was seen as being normatively better, right? It was a better way of making decisions. Um, and so that, that was the kind of stage, right? we progressed from children to adults to Kant and, and we reasoned through it and the quality of that reasoning um, 
kind of dictated the quality of our moral judgments. But then there were some cracks that appeared. So uh, one of um, one of Kohlberg's students, Carol Gilligan, said, this whole framework is kind of ridiculous because it, it privileges this kind of um, objectivist, male Kantian view of the world. And, and it's not necessarily better, right? There's no better or worse ways in making a moral decision. Hewing to the categorical imperative doesn't make you any better than being concerned about the welfare of your family. And so she, she had this amazing critique, and, and, and that was only the first. And then uh, at the same time that, that she said that there's you know, not one best way of making moral decisions, there's an anthropologist named Rick Schwader who went to India and revealed that you know, Indians make different moral judgments than Westerners. And, you know, as a true anthropologist, he said, look, and, and these are just as valid, right? Um, if you understand their worldview. And so, uh, again, Kant is, is not the be all end all. And based on, on those kind of critiques of, uh, of moral reasoning and, and improving in moral judgment over time, moral psychology started to wonder maybe, maybe, you know, there wasn't one moral truth. And, reasoning wasn't the best. And so uh, into this uh, changing time, John Haidt uh, came along, who I think you've interviewed as well. And, and he did some great work suggesting that maybe our moral judgments are uh, intuitive, more intuitive than we think. They're more about kind of spontaneously thinking good or bad rather than reasoning through dilemmas. And maybe moral judgments differ genuinely ac across cultures and contexts. And so that was in the early 2000s. And then after that, has been some work following up on this kind of uh, insight from, from John Haidt, who kind of synthesized a lot of important uh, thinking up till there about intuitionism and moral pluralism. And then from those insights, there's kind of been theories that have emerged um, that, that take the insights of intuitionism and pluralism and then marry them to this idea of, of the mind as this like modular, super modular brain, right? So this, it's uh, this before idea. we jump into the modular brain, I'm going to have, have yeah. to ask you to, to, to help us understand this idea of intuitionism and pluralism in the context of morality. Oh, sure. Yep. Happy to, to back up. Uh, so intuitionism is the idea that our, our judgments, whether moral or not, are dictated by fast and quick and relatively automatic processes in our mind. So, so specifically yep. against this very formal, rash, rational, reasoned approach that had been articulated historically. That's right. That's right. So if I ask you, um, do you like broccoli? What's your answer? Yes, instantly. I love it. Right. There you go. Right. So you don't have to think. And, and if I say, well, why do you like broccoli? It would take me too long to articulate all the various different glories of its flavor. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. Or maybe it's just hard to think of them because you, you don't need, you don't exactly. need to reason for it, right? It just comes spontaneously. Um, and so a, a lot of work in social psychology uh, that predated this kind of intuitionism, revolution, and morality suggests that all sorts of judgments are really intuitive, right? So whether you, uh, how you feel towards politicians, how you feel towards foods, how you feel towards, um, I don't know, like fashion, whatever. It doesn't matter, right? E everything, it, it's argued, is uh, is intuitive, and it's only by kind of like really powerfully exerting uh, a force of will that we can bring our reasoning to bear on something, right? So, like, what's the best political system? You'd say, I don't know, uh, democracy and capitalism. And you, if you ask me why, I'd say, uh, I, 
you know, I would give you some reasons, but the idea of intuitionism is perhaps those reasons uh, aren't, aren't really reasons. They're not the things that are really driving our judgment so much as uh, what's happening is we just have an intuition, uh, a feeling in a sense in our, in our minds and bodies, and we just make our, our judgments uh, based on those feelings. And then right? these so, reasons are more like post hoc justifications for those feelings. Yeah. So that, that I think is debatable. So okay. that's some, something that the, the moral, the moral psychology community thinks that these reasons are made up. Uh, I'm not so convinced that the reasons are entirely made up, um, but I am convinced that moral judgments are at least intuitive, right? If you ask someone about guns or abortion or taxes, they have a quick and automatic uh, right. judgment. So that's intuitionism. That's intuitionism. Pluralism. So pluralism is just the idea that when people uh, different people make different moral judgments. Those moral judgments we should take at face value as authentically moral. So that is to say, if um, if one person thinks that uh, you can steal from the government to feed your starving family, then that is a is a judgment that is just as valid as someone who says you should never steal because it violates um, the categorical comparative, which says never do something bad if it's bad in any context. So pluralism suggests that, um, right, that any moral judgment, if, if kind of, and here's where it gets a little tricky, right? Like what's a valid moral judgment? It, if a community kind of like authentically holds this, right? So if all Indians think that it is wrong to eat beef, um, then as Westerners, we can't say like, oh, you you Indians, right? You just need more people with pith helmets walking around, and then eventually you would come to see that that beef is lovely to eat, um, as uh, you know, as we do in the West. I feel but, like you only bring up that example because I've got an English accent, but yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> just twist the knife to the to the Brits, exactly. Pluralism really suggests that all moral intuitions uh, are are valid intuitions and and serve a, a really functional purpose, right? So the idea is. Um, is they're valid because they help people who have those intuitions meet a variety of functional challenges, right? So we pretty much all have a moral intuition about like not, uh, not murdering people because if there was a society that murdered people every which way, then that society would die out, right? Um, and so there are other intuitions like don't eat shellfish, right? And so maybe in the West when there's uh, red lobster here in America and you can eat all sorts of shellfish all the time. We think that's foolish, but if you lived in the desert and and far away from the coast, and shellfish were un, you know likely to be rotten, then that's a, a reasonable intuition, right? And so now you've got um, maybe a, right. a, a kosher intuition about not eating shellfish, and, and that seems wrong. So the idea is that all these intuitions are valid if you understand them in their kind of functional context. Understood. So that is that shift away, therefore, from, let's call it the sort of biscuit-dry, algebraic philosophy of morality that leads us to Kant and only Kant through a, a sort of an appreciation of the subjectiveness of it and the psychology around how morality is articulated, that intuitive sort of gut feeling that we have. So that's the shift that John Haidt with moral foundations theory brings about. And then we end up with sort of extensions of that, including morality as cooperation, for example. And I guess I want to take a, a step back and say, you know, John really made two kind of two separate points, and I think they're often conflated. Um, and maybe they're conflated in his mind too, but I see the point of intuitionism and pluralism, thinking of morality as like, how does it help 
people and especially people in their groups survive. I think that's a it's a really compelling analogy or sorry, insight and um, right, really transform moral psychology. I think there's a second step that was taken with things like moral foundations theory and even morality as, as cooperation. And that is um, thinking that th that general idea of intuitionism and, um, and pluralism has a specific structure in the mind. Um, and, and that idea is that if there's different kinds of morality in the world, then there must be different pieces of the brain that correspond to each of those kinds of morality. Beautiful uh, image. And that makes lots of sense. The image that I have for moral foundations theory, which some of our listeners will be very familiar with, is almost like a graphic equalizer with five buttons that go up and down, right? You have the, the five, perhaps even six key features of morality as articulated by moral foundations theory. And they go, liberals have two, conservatives have five. They go up and down at different levels. Yeah, it's sort of like, is that what you mean by the sort of a modular morality? Yeah, exactly. So the graphic equalizer is is an interesting analogy because it is it's separated from the from the the mind, right? Like you could just say those were just generally descriptive things, right? So graphic equalizers can vary uh, in terms of a dimension, right? Typically, you've got your like base and mids and treble, let's say, and yeah. those all vary along a single dimension, right? But I think moral foundation says that each of those is a totally different switch. Right, somehow in the in the, in the mind. So, I, I think it's important to keep in mind that those analogies are actually uh, quite different. I think John's gotcha. talked about like different taste buds or different switches in the brain. Um, so, the kind of dimensional view is the, these are all kind of like dimensions. Uh, I think is is a little more reasonable than the idea is that there's discrete foundations. If, um, if understood, should we just li list list them to be clear? So on the you, you you may need to help me. On the one hand, you have um, the instinct towards protecting from harm, the instinct towards justice, mm -hmm. the instinct towards authority, towards loyalty, and towards purity. Is that right? Is that the is that the five? That that's right. Yep, those are the the pantheon. Uh, the pantheon of, of morality is articulated by moral foundations theory, modular right. in that way. And that second part, that sense of a modular morality across our brains, is what you take issue with, isn't it? That's correct, yeah. And I think it's useful to think of the context in which moral foundations theory uh, arose. And, and that was in kind of cognitive science back in the 80s and, and 90s, thought of the brain as being consistent of these distinct little modules so you might have a, an evolutionarily given module for uh, detecting cheaters. You might have an evolutionary module for um, finding a mate. And so the idea was like you had all these little Lego pieces uh, and those Lego pieces could be taken out of the brain or put into the brain. If you, you, know, you imagine that God was designing our brains or evolution, of course, and there, you'd have like four little modules or five little modules in the case of moral foundations theory. And, and that analogy really rose out of this idea of, of basic emotions, which um, your listeners may or may have uh, may or may not have heard of, but the idea is that you know the movie Inside Out. We have five distinct emotions like fear and anger and happiness and sadness and disgust and maybe surprise. And so it's it's kind of an analogy theory in that sense, right? Like, well, if we have five basic emotions, then let's say we have five moral judgments, and then you know yeah. we'll call it a day. <laughs> um, but I mean, we can we can jump right into it. I think that there's uh, there's actually not a lot of evidence that um, that there are these five modules, and I think there's actually pretty poor evidence that these are the five even descriptive things. Um, 
that that describe morality. Um, in the original Moral Foundations paper, you show that things like authority and loyalty are correlated about 0.9. Um, so I, I think there's there's kind of scant evidence that there is there are these distinct foundations as um, as argued by Height. Gotcha. So not only the idea itself of these this modular morality is dodgy, but also that um, that even the categories there are the wrong ones. You posit, therefore, something radically simpler, which you call dyadic moral theory. What is dyadic moral theory, Kurt? The theory of dyadic morality is the idea that when we understand the moral world, we ultimately perceive it in terms of harm. And so um, it's called dyadic morality because the core of our moral judgments involve two people. Uh, an agent who is doing the moral deed and a, a patient who's receiving it. So you can think of that as like a perpetrator and a victim. And so if you think about the the most classic canonical immoral acts like murder or child abuse, child abuse is a is a, a great act, not because it's a great thing to do, but because it perfectly captures that morality. So right. if you think about child abuse, You've got, um, you know, an adult who is this intentional, responsible person, and they are causing damage to a vulnerable, suffering uh, patient or victim or child. And so the, the, the crux of didactic morality is that the lens through which we see the moral world is this template of uh, an intentional, responsible agent causing damage to a suffering, vulnerable patient. And so it, it perfectly captures things like murder and abuse and assault, even fraud, right? Uh, unfairness, all sorts of things like, like that, where the, you know, someone is, is causing damage to another. But the, the interesting thing about didactic morality is it can also help explain why people moralize other things. So if you think, and this is a um, uh, a classic example of, of political disagreements from America, if you think that uh, that gay people are immoral, as uh, Anita Bryant did, and Anita was this country western singer in the 60s. She didn't just think that it was it was bad somehow to be gay. She thought that that it would be ultimately harmful, right? She perceived this dyadic template in homosexuality. She thought that gay men would drive around and recruit children to their amazing lifestyle, so fabulous, um, right? Like, I don't know, convertibles and snappy dressing, and that they wouldn't have kids, and then America would have no children, and then uh, eventually, you know, nuclear holocaust. So, this line may not be super obvious to, to, to some listeners, but I think to people who view things as immoral, they legitimately and deeply view them as harmful. And so didactic morality is ultimately about the link between perceived harm and immorality. There's a whole bunch to unpack there, but just given you, you started down, down that route, in another one of your papers, you talk about a sexual act which has absolutely no possible harm elsewhere it's that the, you, you describe somebody masturbating to the image of their deceased sibling which to most of us um elicits disgust revulsion and a sense of that being immoral but yet no harm is actually played out in that instance so is there an argument that you're backtracking harm into something else why is it harm that is what are the i, I know there's huge amounts of research here so i'm asking you for it 
what's the research which tells you that in fact the reaction to that that revulsion is one around harm and not one around something else mm -hmm. yeah good question so the uh the theory of datic morality ultimately argues against the idea of harmless wrongs. It says that, um, right, they don't exist because if you think that something is wrong, then you also see it as harmful. And so the, there are many examples often trotted out to, to argue against this. Um, but I think those examples are typically trotted out by people who don't see the things they're talking about as deeply wrong. So for acts of sexual immorality, um, typically the people who advance those ideas are, uh, are liberals and atheists, let's say. Uh, and when they entertain them, they think, oh, that, that's, that's gross. But they don't think of them as deeply intuitively wrong. And it turns out that if you ask people who do view those things as deeply and intuitively wrong, they also view them as deeply and intuitively harmful. Now, it, it can be hard to, to argue you know, like what exactly are the are the harms if someone's saying, well, like, I don't believe that there's harms because I don't believe in the case of masturbating to a picture of your dead sibling. I don't believe that people, you know, survive death. I don't believe that there's a heaven. And so, you know, I don't believe that your, your sister is watching you from heaven, you know, screaming and shrieking, crying as she thinks, how can my brother masturbate to a picture of me, right? I mean, it's not hard to, to picture some harm if you grant some assumptions, namely that your sibling can, um, you know, live on after death okay. uh, and so forth. So I think it is, it is very easy to see those harms if you grant a number of assumptions, right? Or if you want to go to the societal route, if your neighbor is the kind of person who masturbates to a picture of their sister, right, what kind of things are they going to do when your child is out and about, right? And, and people powerfully see uh, these harms or so these wrongs as uh, causing harm in the moment, but also suggesting some deep character flaws, which will translate eventually to concrete harm. Understood. But as I understand it, the, the bulk of your research, or a lot of your research, has, has, has focused on the fact that across multiple cultures, that this notion of immorality and notion of harmfulness is almost synonymous you see that all over the place so that's at the heart of this your theory of dyadic morality is it not that harmfulness and immorality are almost interchangeable ideas across multiple cultures and also the things which seem to us so you've just talked about the things which seem to us as immoral being also seeming to us as being harmful but also that the things which we see of uh, as being harmful translate also in our minds as being immoral. That's right. That's right. So there's a, an inextricable link between uh, harm and immorality, and, and it works both ways. And I think, to, to be honest, if, if it wasn't for a kind of background in moral psychology, uh, arguing about you know, how much we can learn from people doing weird sexual acts without a victim, I think it's actually pretty uncontroversial that 95% of our moral judgments are ultimately about harm. So if you look at the laws on the books in any country, it's ultimately about safeguarding people and society from harm, okay. right? Children, the elderly, adults, whatever. I mean, it's, it's all about guarding people from harm. And so it, it, funnily enough, it seems like the bulk of the arguments in moral psychology about the nature of harm are arguing about these fringe concepts. Uh, I, I suggest that um, ultimately we're kind of arguing about whether the platypus is a mammal, 
um, and that a lot of these theories often miss the point. And even, even John Haidt, who sometimes argues against static morality, he will grant that when people are disloyal to their parents or you know, burn an American flag or, or do things that are, um, don't have obvious victims, but you could still argue that they're harmful, right? Like the downfall of America occurs when people defile its symbols. And so I think most people do agree that there's, there's clear perceived harm in a lot of acts, uh, but maybe not in cases where you're having sex with a dead chicken or something like that. So I, I think that's the point I want to make that most people agree and most everyday people agree, but um, we're kind of arguing about the fringes here. Okay, understood. So we've talked about certain instances where there doesn't seem to be an obvious um, an obvious victim, because in your dyadic model, you need a perpetrator and a victim, uh, like sexual behavior, which harms nobody else. Um, what about, what do we do with self-harm? Just as a sort of out, out of curiosity, how do we perceive self-harm? Do we understand self-harm as within the moral framework as well? Mm -hmm. That's a that's a great question, and self harm is is again I think these cases are so interesting self harm and also these weird sexual proclivities because they're on the fringes right there there are these these difficult thought experiments because they don't match our typical intuitions and that's why they're fun to think about but also that's suggestive that they're not um, you know they're not characteristic of most moral judgments but about self harm I think you know. Again, there's disagreement about whether uh, whether it's wrong and what even constitutes self-harm. So uh, some people think masturbation is self-harm. Some people think um, lethargy is self-harm, you know, some of the gluttony, some of these seven deadly sins. And I think if you think that these kinds of self-harm are, uh, are actually harmful, then I think you see them as immoral. And, and I think the way you can you can get with the dyadic template is you see the present self as harming their future self. So the present self, the one who's like lazy and overreading and taking drugs, that's the person who's harming the future self. Um, and, and certainly the way that people talk about, uh, about these, these things, these acts of self-harm or motivating people not to commit them is like, think about your future self, right? Or think about uh, your family, right? Suicide. You're going to, kill your future self and also make your family miserable, you know? So I, I think even there people have the sense of harm. That's fascinating and brings us in the most peculiar way possible to the, the core of dyadic morality, which is theory of mind. Um, and in this particular instance that we've brought up is, the, is this idea of a perpetrator committing, um, committing an act of violence or an act of harm upon a victim, both of whom are the, <laughs> the same person. But therefore, theory of mind is absolutely central to uh, dyadic morality. That's right. So for harm to be uh, perpetrated and, and, and importantly perceived, you have to have someone who can be harmed and you have to have someone who, you know, is blameworthy in committing that harm, someone who can uh, appreciate the harm that's caused. So, right, a, a hurricane uh, destroying a village, it, it's bad, but it's not evil, right? Because people who are suffering are, are suffering, but there's not an agent who you can blame for it, right? Unless you think that the hurricane's caused by corporations polluting or God enacting vengeance, let's say. And then on the flip side, to be something uh, immoral, you need someone who can really suffer, right? So if I shoot a gun into the sky, um, it's maybe a little little dangerous, but it's not as immoral as if that bullet came down and, and hit a kid uh, or, or a puppy, 
And so you need to be able to perceive someone as capable of suffering and as someone capable of intention. And, and this is where you can get a lot of, of differences between, between people, right? So uh, in the US where they locked away immigrant children, I think some people saw those children as, as suffering, as legitimately suffering and their, and their heart just you know, wept, wept for those children in cages. But on the other hand, if, if you thought that was a reasonable policy, then you see those children as um, as not really feeling the same feelings as perhaps an American child, right? That you know, those immigrant children just don't have the depth of feeling that I do. And and beyond that, like they're going to come here and they're going to assault my children. So you see those children not as suffering victims, but instead as uh, as intentional perpetrators. And so. If you, if you view kind of victims, not as victims, but as perpetrators, then you can erase the moral harm of harming them. So here we are at the very rub, because if we look at polarization across the political spectrum, or if we look purely at the differences in our own moralities, um, everything, according to dyadic moral theory, hinges on an understanding of who is the perpetrator and who is the victim. Intentionality and suffering, I suppose, on that point. Because just with the example of the children being locked up, there is a surely Republican line, which would be to say that the perpetrators of the locking up of the children is not Donald Trump's executive order. It is the parents of those children who illegally brought them over the border. So this key question of the differences in our morality is around where you attribute agency. Is that right? That's right. Where you attribute agency and, and the capacity to suffer. So if you look at kind of conservative news sources, what they'll emphasize for immigration is the fact that you know, there was someone raped by an illegal immigrant. And right, I mean, that is suffering, right? I mean, having having illegal immigrants cause harm to a young woman is a clear dyadic instance, right? There's an intentional agent harming a, a suffering patient. But on the, on the liberal side, right, there's children locked in cages and a, a government that's intentionally doing it. So it's kind of like a, a necker cube or a, or a visual illusion in some sense. The more you can see a, a, a suffering patient, then the more you see this intentional agent and those kind of reinforce each other's perceptions until you have really different worldviews, right? You totally disagree about who can suffer and who can cause harm and, and whether that demands action. We're sort of at the heart of why people disagree so spectacularly. It's intentionality and the perceptions of suffering. Can the theory of dyadic morality help us build a sort of a taxonomy using the theory? Can we begin to see where conservatives sit or the kind of, uh, the kind of agency that they attribute or the kind of victimhood that they see as opposed to the agency and victimhood that liberals or progressives would see? Is there, can you build a taxonomy there between, across the political spectrum? I think so. Uh, I hope so because we're we're trying to do it kind of as we speak, uh, build these kind of understandings. So I think what it boils down to are different assumptions of vulnerability is what we call it. So liberals and conservatives differ kind of fundamentally on on who or what they see as vulnerable to harm, and and then they have narratives in their own kind of political bubbles that reinforce those assumptions of vulnerability. So. I think if you are uh, conservative, you see uh, divinity as more vulnerable to harm just by virtue of believing in it, right? So if you believe in God and believe in Jesus and believe in the immortal soul, then it's obviously, it's more possible to harm those things than if you don't believe they exist at all, right? So that can help explain 
when conservatives say, well, think of the damage to your mortal soul. Uh, watching pornography will, will taint your soul and send you to hell. And if liberals are atheists and they don't believe that you even have a soul, then clearly there's going to be some disagreement there. I also think that uh, conservatives are more likely to see powerful people as having the capacity for suffering. So business owners, CEOs, people who we think are relatively more powerful, conservatives will, will say, look, they are people just like any other person. And so when a CEO uh, cries, it is, it is the same tears of, uh, of someone else crying, right? So I think conservatives see, see people as capable of suffering kind of no matter how powerful they are in society, no matter how, how much agency they have in a, in a general sense. Uh, so, and I think this, this is reflected in things like their opposition to affirmative action policies, right? So if, um, if a rich white kid doesn't get into college and is very upset about it, then conservatives will say, well, her being upset is just as valid as, you know, someone, uh, an African-American applicant who came from a poor neighborhood, right? Like there's two people who are upset. How do we adjudicate between their levels of upsetness? well, maybe we should just admit the person who's more qualified on paper. Now, and of course, liberals will say, um, you know, there's systemic differences between, um, you know, their ability to get in. But, but I think the fact of the, the moral disagreement is about these uh, weighting their kind of suffering. Mm -hmm. Okay, so conservatives, we've got divine, and we've got the powerful. And I think uh, liberals, on their hand, they really see people differ than themselves as capable of suffering in a, in a way that conservatives often don't. So liberals will see, imagine a white liberal, will see uh, African-Americans as capable of suffering or Muslim immigrants or refugees, right? All sorts of people who, who are strikingly different than themselves. Oftentimes when we look at other people's minds across differences, we'll see them as somehow less than ours. And conservatives, or sorry, and liberals sometimes see them as even more than theirs, right? Um, so I may be suffering in this election, they might think, but really African-Americans suffer even more. And so that kind of elevation of the, of the suffering of, of people different to themselves, I think can really help explain liberals' worldviews. And then the, the other thing that I think liberals really see as vulnerable is the environment. And maybe this is because we've grown up on movies like Fern Gully or Avatar, right? The paint trees as being able to feel. But, but I think when liberals look around the world, they see environmental destruction, degradation, not as just, you know, using up a resource, but as really causing damage, right? As pandas crying and squirrels dying and, and trees weeping and so forth. So I, I think those are the kind of differences in, in perceived vulnerability. On one hand, the other and the environment for liberals, uh, and on the other hand, the powerful and the divine for conservatives. So that's on the vulnerability side. Can we do the same, can we do the same exercise on the agency side? So the kind of people or things that cause the damage, the nasty CEO kicking the poor baby or the, or, or the pedophile or whatever it might be. Yeah, it's a it's a great point, and it's something that we haven't we haven't really uh, dug in quite as much, because I think we're typically thinking of of adults in general as being able to do harm, and so I think oftentimes it's what it's really driven by is the the vulnerability first, and then you fill in the agency or accelerate the agency afterwards. But but I think. Uh, 
you can kind of see these played out, right? In that liberals can see white people, white Americans as really perpetrators of harm and conservatives see agency much less. So typically we find in our studies that agency and, and suffering uh, are complementary or inverse of each other. So that the more suffering you have, then the less agency or intention for, for causing harm and vice versa. So I think we can just look at understandings of vulnerability and kind of flip it. So uh, liberals see the powerful as really agents of harm, whereas conservatives, uh, again, just see that people are people and, you know, the powerful are no more likely to harm than, uh, than any other. Or in fact, you know, it's almost the opposite actually. So if you, if you think of conservatives being concerned about the erosion of, of free speech, um, and I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a valid concern being concerned about free speech, but I, I think the, the conservative narrative often kind of flips flips the liberal narrative on its head, right? That the people who are really um, in danger here are relatively powerful uh, white men, right? Because they have an opinion to express and the kind of hordes of others are trying to cancel them. So I think you can see in this concern about cancel culture, this kind of, um, this dyadic template as well. Is there any particular reason that you think that liberals are more concerned about the environment than conservatives are? There is a strong argument which has been made elsewhere that conservatives are slightly more prone to science denialism than uh, than liberals are. They, they like systemic change, the kind of systemic change that science promises um, considerably less <laughs> than, uh, than liberals do for obvious reasons. But is there an equivalence between the sort of the fear of the divine being damaged on the conservative side and the fear of the environment being damaged on the liberal side? It's a great question, and I think that there you've kind of picked up two two kind of continuums, right? So the environment versus the divine is really kind of how much uh, science versus spiritual kind of you emphasize, um, and the the other versus powerful I think is really about social change. So the powerful are the powerful. Um, and they have been for a long time and then giving that power to others right really undermines the the status quo and and the the ways in which the power is allocated today and on the on the environment and and divine side right the more you uh believe in god and and believe that god is the way of knowing things instead of science and the more you put emphasis on the divine uh, versus the environment. So kind of these two broad tensions between the, the status quo and ways of knowing. Merely, wow. So yes, you've got a hard tension there between epistemology and um, a deep either optimism or pessimism around the future. That's right. And, and in fact, I think, you know, conservatives see harm uh, when we change because they're worried about throwing out all the you know, all the, the deep cultural things that, that define America and all the, the good things that those have given us, right? So in the argument about discarding Confederate statues, liberals say, well, what you're doing is you're, uh, you're going away from a past of slavery. And, and that's not only important, but, but paramount. And I think conservatives say, clearly slavery was wrong, but there's also many amazing, you know, good things, heroics and bravery that have happened in the past. And we need to, to not, not forget that and, and honor that. So, um, right, there's competing narratives of harm and, and change. Kurt, thank you so much for walking us through these ideas in the aftermath of the 
election in the US, do you think that the conservative and liberal sides of the political spectrum will come closer together? Will, or, or do you think we're, we're the polarization that we see today and have seen exacerbated by the last four years of, of, of Trump um, are here to stay? I really hope that there is a, a way we can move forward and bridge these divides. And in fact, I'm dedicating my my whole research career to finding ways to bridge these divides. And I think one way forward is acknowledging that the other side's perceptions of harm are legitimate. And I think that's that's one powerful thing that's stopping America from moving forward. So when when conservatives say, look, we are actually worried about the harm caused by by those who, you know, own businesses and those who enjoy political power now, I think liberals can say that's a valid concern. If you're the kind of person, right, if you're a, a, a white business owner and you're worried about paying your payroll as taxes go up, that's a reasonable concern. And on the other hand, I think conservatives need to acknowledge that that when liberals are concerned about, you know, illegal immigrants or people of different religions and races, right, those are also valid concerns. And they're not being histrionic when they're, right, concerned about helping people immigrate or safeguarding, you know, protections across race. So I, I think the step forward is to think that, I think, as you mentioned at the beginning, right, we see other people as immoral and that stops us from from interacting um, productively with people. And the way to see people as more moral is to acknowledge that their perceptions of harm are not made up, but instead authentic, and that they really are worried about safeguarding others um, from suffering. It's one of these one of these key things that I can't quite articulate, but um, in the aftermath of Brexit, which I was a, which was very firmly against, what I couldn't get my head around was the sincerity of the other side. I didn't think they were being rational. I didn't think they were being moral, but I also didn't really believe that they thought that they that they agreed with their own position. And as you say, understanding the sincerity, the authenticity of the other side is the first step to realizing that actually the moral foundations upon which they, their politics are built are as real to them as ours are to us. Exactly. Kurt, thank you very much indeed for this conversation. It's been thrilling. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.